Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. In 1336, the temples of Egypt echoed with the sound of work. Countless artists, masons, builders, and sculptors applied their crafts to the gods' great houses. They carved stone, adding inscriptions and decorations. They hauled blocks, preparing new structures for the deities. And they repaired damage left by a previous monarch. Throughout the land, royal artisans renewed the sanctuaries of the gods. Meanwhile, another artist prepared his tools. In a workshop, the man lit a fire to heat a crucible. He was preparing gold, nebu. With great skill, he would melt this gold and pour it into moulds. Carefully, he would fashion this gold into statues. These statues would be the sacred images that lived within the temples. In other words, this sculptor was making new bodies for the gods themselves. His task was essential for the religious life of the country. In 1336, the temples of Egypt bustled with life. People moved by the hundreds in service of the gods, and in service to the king. The Egyptian government and its ruler, Tutankhamun, were restoring the holy centres. These people made it happen. Today, their deeds and stories survive in unexpected places. Welcome, everyone, to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 145, Restoration 2, The Faces of the Gods. Today, we dive deeper into a project from the reign of Tutankhamun. This king is famous for restoring the temples of the deities. But what did that involve? Who did the work? Today, we explore the records of this time and meet the people who made it all happen. This episode was forged in crucibles of gold, gold provided by Elizabeth, Stephanie, and Eric. These fine folks donated to the show, and I am most grateful. Unfortunately, I do not have the resources to build a temple, yet, but I can offer stories, and I hope this repays my debt. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us open the doors of the shrines and visit the Houses of the Gods. The year was 1336 BCE, approximately. It was the eighth year under Tutankhamun, aka the living image of Amun. Now aged 17 or so, 
the ruler of Egypt was established in power. His government was active, busy with major projects. Today, the results of those projects survive in many places. Some are familiar, others less so. Recently, we saw the start of Tutankhamun's grand policies. In episode 141, we described a text called the Restoration Stealer. There, Tutankhamun explained his work on behalf of the gods, how he, the pious king, had renewed the temples and restored the deities. That text is interesting, but it's also just words. To get a sense of what actually happened, we need to visit the temples themselves, the places that Tutankhamun and his people restored. Let's start at Karnak. The temple of Karnak needs no introduction. The home of Amun-Ra, it is the largest sanctuary in Egypt. Today, Karnak is a maze of buildings, constructed over 2,000 years. This can make it hard to find one particular ruler. But if you know where to look, people like Tutankhamun are still visible in some places. First up, Tutankhamun's government restored older parts of Karnak. At the start of his reign, many of the structures were damaged thanks to his predecessor. Akhenaten, the heretic pharaoh, had inflicted wounds on the house of Amun. Now, the new regime repaired that damage. To begin, royal sculptors erected scaffolding around the major buildings. They clambered up walls to the places that Akhenaten had attacked. The old king's masons had chiseled out hieroglyphs referring to Amun. They had erased the images of that god and his family. They had even attacked royal cartouches. The names of kings, like Amunhotep III, had suffered at the chisels of Akhenaten. Everywhere in Karnak, that king's legacy was visible. So Tutankhamun's government repaired that damage. They hired sculptors to fix the erasures and add new decorations. The artisans carved hieroglyphs and new figures of the gods. You can still see these repairs today. In order to fix the damage, the artists had to chisel the stone back a bit. Then they could smooth it out and add new features. This means that parts of Karnak have dents, where masons removed the damage and added new carvings. When visiting Karnak, or studying photos, it can be fun to play spot the erasures. If you're feeling really bold, try taking a drink every time you find one. I guarantee you'll be down in minutes. Anyway, Tutankhamun's restorations appear throughout Karnak. One example is particularly good. On the walls of a pylon or gateway, Tutankhamun's artists repaired a damaged scene. When they did, they added a text to record their work. On this wall, hieroglyphs say, quote, A renewal of the monument that the king of southern and northern Egypt, Tutankhamun, made for his father, Amun-Ra, lord of the thrones of the two lands. May he, the king, be given life like Ra. End quote. Basically, Tutankhamun's artists fixed that part of the temple. And when they did, they signed the restoration on behalf of the king. It was probably a good idea. This gateway used to be the entrance of Karnak Temple, so putting the text on the gate publicised Tutankhamun's work. The king made sure he got the credit. 
Tutankhamun's restorations show up in many places at Karnak. There are tiny references scattered here and there, telling how the king repaired old sections and buildings. Unfortunately, there are way too many to describe. But long story short, the king repaired buildings from the time of Amunhotep III, Amunhotep II, Tutmos III, and King Hatshepsut. This must have taken years. Artists would have to erect scaffolding, plan out new scenes, and carefully rework old images. You can imagine the king's sculptors were busy for a long time indeed. Besides repairs, Tutankhamun also added statues to Karnak. There are many of these images in various museums. But one statue is still visible at the temple. It is easy to miss, but it's quite cool. When you enter Karnak, you make your way along the tourist route. Eventually, you will reach an enormous hall of columns. This hypostyle hall is famous. You see it in every documentary. Well, just beyond this hall, statues of Tutankhamun await the careful visitor. Past the hall of columns, you come to pylon number six. Here, next to a shrine, a pair of statues stand side by side. They are tall, much larger than life-size. One is male, one is female. The statues show two great gods. Their names are Amun and Amunet. Amun and Amunet are old, some of the oldest gods around. They appear in the stories of creation, when they existed even before the universe. The two gods represent a male and female principle, one shrouded in mystery. This is conveyed by their names. Amun and the female version Amunet both translate as the hidden one. They are beings of secrecy, of unknowableness. They are the definition of sacred mystery. The statues bear hieroglyphs on the back, texts that identify them and their owner. On these statues, we hear of Tutankhamun's piety for Amun and Amunet. The statues say, quote, He, the king, has made a gift for his father Amun-Ra. He has renewed this excellent statue. He has made a gift for his mother Amunet. He has renewed this excellent statue. Beloved of Amun-Ra, who dwells in Akhmenu, given life. Beloved of Amunet, who dwells in Akhmenu. End quote. So the statues are gifts from the king to Amun and Amunet. We can see that from the hieroglyphs. But realistically, most people would never read those. So if you couldn't read the glyphs, how would you know? Well, the statues double down on the connection between the gods and the royalty. You see, these images of Amun and Amunet bear the faces of the king and queen. The statue of Amun has the face of Tutankhamun. He has full lips with a distinct outline. His eyes are almond-shaped, with thick eyeliner stretching out on either side. His eyebrows arch elegantly over the sockets, and his face bears the smooth, round proportions that we see on his coffins and mask. At his chin, a beard completes the look. Amunet, meanwhile, bears the face of Ankh-Esen Amun, the queen of Egypt, the wife of the king. It's trickier to confirm her face because we do not have as many portraits for this lady. Also, the statue is damaged, the nose and the chin are missing, 
but we can get the basic idea. Ankh Esen Amun has the round, smooth face associated with these rulers. Her eyes are almond-shaped, like the king's, but they are more angular. So the queen is distinctive. Amunet bears her features. Today, many tourists pass by the statues, never realising whom they show. Maybe they snap a quick photo, but few people recognise the faces of the king and queen. But now you, dear listener, know the secret. Next time you are exploring Karnak, see if you can find the statues behind pylon number 6. I'm sure Tutankhamun and Angesen Amun, Amun and Amonet, would appreciate the effort. There are other images of Tutankhamun that come from Karnak. Many of them are in museums in Luxor, Cairo, and around the world. I wish I had time to cover all of them, but sadly, we must keep moving. There is another temple we need to visit. Just south of Karnak, Tutankhamun appears in another sanctuary. This is the Temple of Luxor. An enormous monument for the great god Amun, Luxor Temple had also suffered under Akhenaten's attacks. The temple and its god needed Tutankhamun's care. Royal agents worked for years adding to this monument. In the process, they enriched the decoration. Many of the scenes carved on the walls are a product of Tutankhamun's artists. These scenes are beautiful, but they're also complicated. So I will come back to them in a future episode. For now, let's focus on Tutankhamun's restorations overall. The king's work at Luxor Temple reveals something important about his propaganda. Luxor Temple, as we know it, is mainly a product of Amunhotep III. Tutankhamun's predecessor, maybe his grandfather, Amunhotep had redesigned and rebuilt most of the sanctuary. So the monument has a special association with that king. When Tutankhamun came to Luxor Temple, he made sure to honour his predecessor. He did this in an interesting way. Tutankhamun's artists continued the work that Amunhotep III had started. They completed parts of the building, and they finished the decorations. They also added Tutankhamun to new scenes. Parts of Luxor Temple include images and texts associating Tutankhamun with his predecessor. In art and hieroglyphs, Tutankhamun appears as an heir of Amunhotep. In one text, we hear about the king's piety for his great ancestor. Tutankhamun says, quote, A renewal of the monument that belongs to his father, the king of southern and northern Egypt, Neb Ma'at Ra, a.k.a. Amunhotep III. The king, Tutankhamun, has made this as his monument for his father, Amun-Ra. It is like the horizon of heaven. Tutankhamun did this as a son should do, one who is beneficial for his father. That father is Neb Ma'at-Ra, beloved of Amun-Ra, the lord of heaven. End quote. The text is convoluted. I had to simplify the language. Long story short, Tutankhamun restored Luxor Temple on behalf of his ancestor. The young king honoured the pharaoh Neb Ma'at Ra, Amunhotep III. He renewed the temple as an offering to Amunhotep and to Amun. Tutankhamun called Amunhotep his father. 
Back in the day, scholars used to read that literally. But the ancient Egyptians used terms like father, mother, and sibling in quite ambiguous ways. The word father does not always mean father. Sometimes it means grandfather or just ancestor. It can even just mean somebody whom a king wanted to associate with. This makes family relationships and words a bit complicated. So Tutankhamun calls Amunhotep III his father, but we do not need to take that literally. Instead, we should recognize the symbolic value of the word. Tutankhamun uses this term for political and religious purposes. He and his government wanted to associate with their glorious predecessor. Tutankhamun could benefit from the legacy of Amunhotep. By connecting their names and their deeds, the young king gained prestige and legitimacy as a ruler of Egypt. Basically, Tutankhamun ignored his real father and focused on Amunhotep. It happens a lot in this period. So Tutankhamun added to Karnak and Luxor temples. The great homes of Amun-Ra received their proper decoration. The king's government invested heavily in these sanctuaries and others throughout Egypt. We will visit more of these temples and more of these projects in the coming episode. For now, it is time to keep moving. After the break, we go past the walls of the temples and enter their sacred hearts. We visit the shrines, the hidden sanctuaries. You see, along with the monuments, Tutankhamun also commissioned new images, statues for the great gods. We have texts describing those statues, and we know the man who made them. That is after the break. See you in a moment. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Chapter 2 Throughout his reign, Tutankhamun and his government invested in the temples. The divine houses received special care and attention under this regime. Throughout Egypt, various sanctuaries show the restoration work by Tutankhamun and his artists. Of course, houses are important. Every god needs a home. But even more importantly, the gods needed bodies. Every temple required a statue, an image of the deity. This was essential. A statue gave a focus point for offerings and prayers. It gave priests and worshippers a visual reminder of the god's presence. It helped people to see the deities on earth. 
Tutankhamun's government invested in new statues for the gods, golden images to fill the shrines and bring life to the sanctuaries. As part of his restoration, Tutankhamun commissioned new statues. It started with a decree. At Karnak Temple, a stone stealer describes Tutankhamun's gifts. The stealer is damaged, but mostly legible. It tells how the king ordered new statues for Amun-Ra. The stealer says, quote, His majesty, life, prosperity, health, decreed on this day the making of a portable statue for his father Amun-Ra, the lord of the thrones of the two lands, who dwells in Karnak. He, the king, decreed the fashioning of Amun's noble image, made in splendid gold, from the plunder of his majesty's might, from the revenue of all foreign lands. End quote. Tutankhamun ordered a new image for Amun-Ra. It would be a portable statue, or Seshem-Hu. This was the statue that sat in a small shrine carried by priests during processions. So the new image of Amun would appear in the festivals. That gives us a basic sense of what Tutankhamun wanted to achieve. He, and his government, wanted statues that people would see on certain occasions. Amun's noble image, or Titef Shepset, would be solid gold, which is a great start. What's more, the gold would come from all foreign lands. Gold acquired in war and gold received as tribute would go into the statue for Amun-Ra. By doing this, the image of Amun would become an image of earthly authority, the power of the divine, the power over foreigners, the power of the pharaoh to gather all wealth. Basically, this was a way to communicate the supremacy of Egypt, of its king, and its gods. By making the statue out of foreign gold, the Egyptians could convey their military and political might. Might that came from Amun's favour. It is one hell of a flex. So Tutankhamun requested a new statue, a new image of the god. This was good policy, a mark of piety for the king, and it went with his public identity as well. As we know, the name Tutankhamun means the living image of Amun. Well, the word Tut, or Tit, can mean image or statue. When written in full, it can include the hieroglyph of a statue figure. So, there was a parallel between the king's name and his deeds. Tutankhamun was the living image of Amun, and he made living images for Amun. It is poetry. It all comes together. So, Tutankhamun commissioned a new statue for Amun-Ra. It should be solid gold, the highest quality. And more importantly, the statue needed to shine like the light of the sun. In this next part of the text, Tutankhamun gives a curious request. The king says, quote, Amun's statue should be made in the craft of eternity, aka the very best quality. Its appearance should be like the Aten when he crosses the sky every day. End quote. The statue of Amun-Ra should gleam like the sun disk in his splendor. That is interesting. Tutankhamun's government is famous for moving away from Aten worship. The king and the queen had changed their names from referencing the Aten to versions referencing Amun. 
So royal policy was shifting, the religion of Akhenaten was fading, and Aten was losing its prominence. And yet, here we see Tutankhamun referencing Aten in connection with Amun-Ra. What gives? Well, the stela reminds us of an important point. Religious ideas and beliefs are rarely black or white. Tutankhamun's government did not abandon or deny Aten the god. Instead, they moved away from the policies of Akhenaten. They rejected the extremism and the initiatives of that king. When they did that, the new policies naturally meant that Aten lost a little bit of its importance. Still, Aten was a legitimate symbol of royal power. The sun disk, shining in the day, was a form of the god Ra, and it had all kinds of religious meanings. So Tutankhamun's government treated Aten differently, but they still honoured the god. Here, we see that in action. Tutankhamun honoured Amun-Ra above all, but he also referenced Aten every now and again. Royal policy was changing, but the sun disk had a role to play. So when he commissioned new statues of Amun-Ra, the king still invoked the Aten. It sounds like a way of having Amun and your Aten too. Did it work? Well, we can only hope. So the Egyptian government spent big on statues for the gods. We know about the image of Amun-Ra thanks to this stela from Karnak. But we also know about other statues, the ones made for different gods of the country. This information comes not from a royal text, but a private memorial. You see, we know the man who made Tutankhamun's statues, and he left a record of the images he made. As we round out this episode, let me tell the story of Tutankhamun's chief sculptor. His name was Hatiai. He made the statues that Tutankhamun demanded. Hatiai was an artist and a manager. He had many titles, including chief sculptor, overseer of works, and record keeper or analyst of the Lord of the Two Lands. In other words, Hatiai was responsible for establishing Tutankhamun's legacy. His jobs as sculptor, overseer of works, and record keeper would all benefit the king's immortality. When he sculpted new statues, Hatiai created the eternal image of Tutankhamun. When he oversaw building projects, he established the monuments of the king. And when he wrote the annals, he recorded the deeds of the monarch. So however you look at it, Hatiai was involved in creating Tutankhamun's legacy. This man is partially responsible for the king's fame and glory. A big job, overall. Titles are nice, but what did Hatiai actually do? Well, he worked on the restoration. And we know that because he left a record of this work. A stone stealer, now in the Netherlands, preserves Hatiai's autobiography. Apparently, the sculptor made this piece as a memorial of his work. A memorial and a record of the things he did on Tutankhamun's behalf. As we will see, this record is detailed and informative. Apparently, Hatiai did a lot. Hatiai describes his work for Tutankhamun. Most importantly, he tells us about his part in the restoration. 
the sculptor worked for the king to make new images of the gods. On this stela, the artist tells us of the work. Hatiai says, quote, I was initiated into the house of gold so that I could fashion the forms and images of all the gods, aka the sacred statues. None of these divine images was kept secret from me. I was the master of secrets, one who saw Ra in all his forms and Atum in his true shape. End quote. Hatiai describes an initiation, how he, a lowly sculptor, had access to the shrines and secrets of the temples. Hatiai had the honour to view the statues, the faces and bodies of the gods. In other words, Hatiai was permitted to study the deities, to learn their physical forms. With that secret knowledge, he could make new images. This was an incredible privilege. As far as we can tell, the statues of the gods rarely left their shrines at the heart of the temples. They might come out during processions and festivals, but the actual statue could often remain obscured. So most people only got a glimpse of the deity occasionally in their life. For Hatiai to study the gods up close with great care and attention must have been an incredible honour. It sounds like the highlight of his career. Hatiai studied the forms of Atum and Ra, but that was not the limit of his work. In the next part of his stela, the man gives a list of all the deities whose statues he's made. The list is lengthy, there are more than 20 names on it, so I'm just going to summarise a few. If you want the full version, I have put that in the epilogue. According to his biography, Hatiai made statues for many gods and goddesses. These included some famous names like Amun, Sakmet, Hathor or Hathor, Usar, Osiris, Jehuti, Thoth, and Anpu, Anubis. End quote. Hatiai received permission to enter their hidden shrines. He could open the doors and gaze on the faces of these gods. Hatiai could study the bodies of the deities, beings whose names and legacies were fundamental to Egyptian society. Whether it was Hathor, the great mother, Usar, the lord of the dead, Jehuti, the master of knowledge, or Anpu, the guardian of the souls. Hatiai saw them all. He entered their shrines and beheld their beautiful forms. Today, his stela preserves a memory of great piety, secret knowledge, and new art. Hatiai made the gods statues, but what did that involve? What did they actually look like? Divine images from the temples are rare. As you can imagine, these golden statues were tempting targets for theft. So only a few examples survive the millennia. From the tomb of Tutankhamun, we do get a basic idea. Small statues made of wood and gold show a variety of deities. We see, for example, the god Ptah, the lord of sculptors like Hatiai. Ptah had a small statue in the king's tomb. He stands wrapped in a cloak, a cloak decorated with feathers like a bird. On his head, Ptah wears a blue cap of lapis lazuli, a rare stone. The blue cap shines brilliantly. Ptah also wears a beard 
and holds a tall staff with symbols of stability, Jed, life, Ankh, and dominion, Was. These symbols combine to form one scepter, so the statue communicates Ptah's power and his image in eternity. Then, a statue of Sakmet, the lioness, sits on a small throne. She wears a long dress, decorated with stars. Her wig is long over the shoulders, and a sun disk rests atop her head. Sakmet reaches out to clutch a staff, or scepter, which is now lost. But the overall image is clear. The lioness, lady of war and disease, rested in the king's tomb. Statues like these are funerary, made specifically for the burial, so they are not the actual statues used in the temples. Nevertheless, the style and appearance is probably similar to ones that Hatiai would make for the shrines. The temple statues would be nicer, the very best quality possible, but from the tomb, we can get a sense of how these gods appear. As always, there are images of these statues on the podcast website. Hatiai's Stila is a remarkable account of the restoration in progress. It is easy to discuss that program from a government level, policy, ideals, propaganda, but rarely do we get a description of the actual, practical work. Hatiai's story reveals the details of a larger project. Thanks to this Stila, we can look past the walls and get a sense of the reality. We will meet Hatiai again before the story is over. That artist contributed in other ways to the legacy of Tutankhamun. So, we will see him again. For now, let us bring this chapter to its close. By 1336, Regnal Year 8, King Tutankhamun was accomplishing great things. Today, the world knows him for his tomb and treasure. But if you know where to look, there are many records of accomplishment in this period. From massive temples to individual stories, we have traces of the king's policies in action. There is much more to say about Tutankhamun's government and the restoration. And I hope you'll forgive me, but I can't resist diving even deeper. Next time, we see how Tutankhamun paid for all of this. A record from year 8 gives a glimpse at the royal finances. How a pharaoh funded his massive restorations. That is next week. For now, it is time to say farewell. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you will enjoy perks as good as Hatiai. May you gain entrance to the shrines, the sacred heart of each temple. May you gaze on the statues and behold the faces of gods. That's all from me. On to the epilogue, in which I give the lengthy, mystical description of the gods whose statues Hatiai made. That is after the music. And now, the detailed list of statues that Hatiai made for the gods. The translation is by Nozomu Kawai from his 2005 PhD, 
Studies in the Reign of Tutankhamun. Describing his work, Making the Statues of the Gods, Hatiai gave a list of the deities. Some of these references are obscure, but they give a hint at the breadth of this man's work. Hatiai says, quote, I was master of secrets, who saw Ra in his forms and Atum in his manifestations. That is Osiris, the lord of Abydos, the foremost of the lords of the sacred land. And that is Thoth, the lord of Hermopolis, the foremost of Heri Chehenu. I saw Shepses in his secret seclusion, and Wenut in her forms. That is Min, united with his splendor. Horus, who dwells in Heseret. Nemetawi, the daughter of Ra. Sakmet, the beloved of Petar and the Ogdoad, which is in Hermopolis, the foremost of Hut-i-Betchet. That is Khnum, the lord of Herwer, Hekait, Hator, Amun-Ra, who dwells in Wenu, Hator in Kusia, the daughter of Pare, as he protects the Excellent One, the Enead, which is in Agenu, Horus the Elder in Asfun and Hemen, the lord of Moala, that is Montu, the lord of Tod, and Anubis, the lord of Tahej. That is Horus, the foremost one of Chebenu. Paket, the mistress of Seret. Thoth, the bull in Dra Inet. Nemti in Wenemti. Amun, of Foreteller of Victories. The bull, lord of Saka. Hekait, mistress of Gesi, and the two Herit goddesses. I was the one who caused them to rest in their shrines of eternity, and I carried them as leader of Festival of the King. End quote. Whew, that is a list and a half. But I hope it gives an idea of the scope of this work. Hatiai must have labored for years to produce so many images. Every statue in gold and gems required careful work, work and knowledge of the individual beings. To craft the holy images, Hatiai had to understand each deity's properties and significance. That knowledge, secret to most, seems to have been a great source of pride. Hatiai had seen things most Egyptians never would. He knew things most people would never know. He recorded that for his eternal legacy. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. The music for this episode was by Jeffrey Goodman, Ancient Lyric, and Keith Scissor, who have generously permitted me to use their work. Please follow the links in the episode description to learn more about these artists and to hear their lovely songs. My special thanks go to Linda, Terry, TJ, and Jason, my priest-level supporters on Patreon. Folks, your generosity goes above and beyond. Surely, without you, the gods would not enjoy such fine restorations. To everyone listening, patron or otherwise, thank you for joining me. I hope you have enjoyed this tale. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. 
Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.